Welcome to our podcast. I am Linda Messer. My husband Ron and I invite you to join us in our weekly broadcast of A New Voice of Freedom. Welcome to Season 4 of A New Voice of Freedom, written by Ronald Keith Messer. This podcast is part of a series we call Stories of the New Testament, an appendage to a series of books written under the banner of In Defense of Christianity. Podcast 124 examines Matthew chapter 14, Miracles. When John the Baptist was beheaded, the Savior understood that his mission was completed. The language of the Bible is terse. Therefore, we are required to read between the lines. Matthew records, When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. Christ often sought a desert place apart for prayer and meditation in this instance perhaps to express his grief. We know his heart was broken for the unjust murder of his cousin who had served his purpose on earth so honorably by sacrificing his life for Christ, the first of many martyrs. Christ also knew even at this early hour that his own disciples would be required to sacrifice their lives for the cause of Christ, and thousands of others would follow. It must have weighed on him. Yet it is followed by one of the great miracles of the Bible the feeding of the 5,000. Saints, or followers of Christ, are required to go through many filtering systems to reach the kingdom of heaven, what Peter calls the trial of your faith. Those who followed Christ into the wilderness were the faithful, for it must have been a hardship for them to leave their daily obligations to seek out the Savior. They were rewarded immensely. We think of it as the feeding of the 5,000, but in their custom they only counted the men. The number of women probably exceeded the number of men. And then there were the children. It was more like 10 or 15,000, all fed on five loaves and five fishes. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. It is revealing that Christ set aside his own sorrow and immediately looked with pity upon the multitude, many of whom came to hear the pleasing word of God and many came to be healed. Imagine for a moment the reality of those who were seriously ill following Christ far into the desert. It was that kind of faith that led to the amazing miracle. And that is the primary message of the feeding of 5,000. Christ, Lord of the earth, creator of man and the universe, could do no miracles unless the people had faith. His move into the desert filtered out those of little faith. What a lesson that was for us to learn today. It is only in our extremities that God is able to perform miracles. Why would Christ so restrict his power? It was a lesson he taught us at the very beginning of his ministry when he went alone into the wilderness led by the Spirit to commune with God. Only after he had fasted forty days, meaning a very long time, when he was at his weakest did Satan appear to him, was he confronted with temptations. His answers to Satan explain Christ's miracles. Remember, the temptations of Christ were as great to him as ours are to us. That is why he has empathy for our sins. The fact that he never gave in to temptation is the reason he has the power to satisfy the law of justice 
and to atone for our sins through his mercy. Matthew 4, 2-11 And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city, and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple, and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus said unto him, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. His temptations represent the type of temptations we all face the desire to serve the natural man, the desire for fame and glory, and the desire for wealth and power. Christ's answers to Satan hold the key to receiving miracles. To understand any miracle, one must understand the experience of Christ in the wilderness when he, the only begotten Son of God, was tempted in the same way that we are tempted. We must understand that Christ really suffered temptation. The difference in his response to temptation and ours is that he never gave in. As Paul said, Hebrews 4.15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. The key is in Christ's response to Satan. 1. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. 2. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. 3. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Therein lies the key to all miracles. In all three instances, Christ put the Father first. Just as Christ never took his eyes off the Father, we should never take our eyes off of Christ. He is the center. It is faith in Christ that precedes all miracles. The multitude came into the wilderness at enormous effort to listen to Christ. Without knowing it, they were their own filters. They were the only ones to seek him out. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time is now past. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fishes and looked up to heaven. He blessed and brake 
and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, beside women and children. In addition, their motives were pure. Here Christ turns five loaves and two fishes into a banquet to feed thousands of people with twelve baskets left over, which were not wasted. But notice the connection. When tempted by Satan to turn the stones to bread after having fasted forty days and forty nights, Christ refused because he put the spiritual over the temporal, the spiritual man over the natural man. Yet here he is also in the desert, and he turns five loaves and two fishes into a banquet that feeds ten or more thousand people. Why was the first evil and the second good? The answer is simple. In both cases, Christ put the Father first. In the first, it was not the Father's will. Christ knew the source of temptation and turned away from it. In the second, it was the Father's will. When we seek any miracle from Christ, we must first seek Christ's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, under the most intense suffering Christ ever suffered, he said, Not my will, but thine be done. He expects the same of us. In every miracle, we must put Christ first, or if we gain the world, it still will not turn out to our good. Going back to the temptations in the wilderness, in the second temptation, Satan tempted Christ to test God by throwing himself down off the pinnacle of the temple, the highest part, and demonstrate that the Father would send angels to bear him up. It is a sin to use the power of God for personal gain and glory regardless of what form it takes. The miracle would have condemned Christ, not exalted him. The power of Christ was in his total submission to the Father's will, just as our power is in total submission to Christ's will. Thy will be done holds the key to our happiness. The third temptation of Christ contains the same message. Satan promises Christ the world if only if he will worship Satan. That experience later prompted Christ to say, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Seeking miracles for personal profit or gain or aggrandizement or for self-importance is a misuse of the power of Christ. Faith in Christ precedes all miracles, and only miracles brought about by faith increase faith. The increase of faith in Christ is the greatest part of all miracles. If that does not occur, the miracles slide into the oblivion of rationalization and vagueness and eventually turn us against God. Following the miracle of feeding the 5,000, Christ sends his apostles away, and he remains in the wilderness alone. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Perhaps Christ, after putting the multitude before himself, went back to his grief over his friend John the Baptist. Perhaps he poured out his soul to God in thanks for the miracle he performed. He gave his father credit for everything. That was at the heart of his greatness, just as giving Christ credit for everything is at the heart of all true greatness. Still, that leads Christ to the most spectacular miracle of all, save raising Lazarus from the dead, walking on water. As we consider the miracle of walking on water, consider again the temptations of Satan. 
1. He tempted Christ to turn the stones to bread. 2. He tempted Christ to cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple. 3. He tempted Christ by offering him the whole world. Christ would not cast himself off the pinnacle of the temple to tempt God, yet here we have him walking on water. How does that differ? In substance, they are the same. Remember, there was a violent storm on the sea, yet he stepped on the turbulent waters, trusting God and his angels to bear him up to the astonishment, not of the multitude, but only of his disciples. Examine the miracle. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? The difference is clearly in the lesson he taught his disciples, and in turn to the world. What grand words! But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Now consider yourself as the impulsive Peter. You aren't going to be asked to walk on water, but I will surmise that many times you have been asked to walk on thin ice. Can you hear in your heart the words of the Savior? Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And then, like Peter, we plunge into the violent sea with faith, and our faith sustains us for a moment until we take our eyes off Christ, distracted by the overwhelming troubles that surround us. Fear enters into our hearts, and we begin to sink. Now here's the greatness and the faith of Peter. Remember, Peter was the only one who got out of the safety of the boat. It seems to say that Peter's faith was greater than the others at that point. Yet he faltered, but still in his greatest adversity, just when he must have thought that the Savior had abandoned him, he cries out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? How many times Peter must have relived that moment when as chief apostle in the absence of Christ, he was given the responsibility to lead the church. But the miracle doesn't end there, does it? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. How many remember the scripture? Psalms 35. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Miracles are not for the faint-hearted. Sometimes there is an edge to miracles. Often tragedy is followed by greater tragedy when we were expecting relief. Perhaps most miracles come only after our patience is tried to the limit. Notice the effect Christ's miracles had on his disciples. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. That is the sign of a true miracle. It increases our faith in Christ and sustains us when enduring other tragedies. 
But the miracles of Christ do not even end there. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Do you remember the first time a person was healed simply by touching the Savior's garment? She had an issue of blood that doctors could not heal. Doesn't it seem logical that that miracle became well known and gave many more the same faith that they could also be healed by merely touching the Savior's garment? That is the true role of miracles, isn't it? To increase not only one's own faith, but the faith of others. Miracles based on faith have staying power. Faith only endures if it precedes the miracle. Here is the truth. No miracle can be performed without faith in Christ. And for onlookers, no miracle can be permanently recognized as a miracle without faith in Christ. In other words, a person can witness a miracle and be momentarily astonished. But without faith, time will tarnish the miracle and rust away its wonder, and one will begin to rationalize and explain it away through logic or scientific explanations. Miracles have their greatest value when they launch faith into wisdom, knowledge, and action as with Peter. 1 Peter 1, 7-9 That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Don't you think that when Peter said that, the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ? When he said that, don't you think he reflected back in his mind to the moment he was sinking in the sea storm, because he took his eyes off Jesus prompting him to cry out, Lord, save me. Only Peter got out of the safety of the boat. Only Peter, a fisherman who knew the dangers of boisterous waves and high sea storms, attempted to walk on water in apparent violation of nature. Faith in God turns all suffering to patience, and patience prepares us to receive the miracle. Thank you for listening. Watch for our next podcast.